Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Organized Success Podcast brought to you by LiveBinders. In this episode, we explore the challenges that instructors can often face with current learning management systems. And we share with you ways in which our invited speakers have learned how to use live binders to get better control over their course curriculum, while at the same time providing meaningful ways to reach their students when in-person, face-to-face just isn't an option. I'm excited to share this conversation with you because these strategies have been proven successful long before the COVID-19 pandemic. The most impressive part for me was seeing the passion and excitement these instructors shared when they discovered how to better improve their students' participation, even in a distant learning situation. There's lots of great insights, philosophies, and strategies being shared today. And for those of you who are navigating remote teaching for the first time, we hope you will find these insights useful for you. Our speakers today are John Dahlgren, who has been using LiveBinders for a few years now and is the drafting and CAD technology instructor at Butte College in California, and Peg Hohensi, who is a longtime LiveBinders author. She is the mathematics department chair at Purdue University Global in Indiana. So let's welcome John and Peg. Thanks, Tina. My name is John Dahlgren. Uh, I am a full-time instructor at Butte Community College in Northern California. Um, my, uh, my background is uh, as an engineer, and I came into teaching after 25 years in industry in various jobs and roles, um, always finding myself compelled by um, mentoring and coaching and facilitating uh, others to find whatever destination it was that they wanted to go. So for me, uh, when a fellow uh, high school instructor asked me to be a part of an advisory committee about uh, 20 years ago now, uh, and then subsequently asked me to um, consider the possibilities of teaching, it was kind of a natural evolution of my career. So I started uh, part-time and uh, was uh, inured to the uh, world of academia as a part-time instructor in uh, 1999, 2000, and then became full-time in uh, 2010. So <clears throat> I, I kind of use that as my backdrop for uh, really what also compelled me and led me to uh, find live binders. And so I look forward to having more conversation about that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I'm always intrigued when I talk to um, some of uh, the college instructors that I've, I've built relationships with about how they, and I guess most of them are in the CTE sector, but they mm-hmm. were first in the work sector and then found that, you know, new college recruits just weren't quite ready for uh, the real world. And then, you know, they felt compelled to go back and kind of be a part of that process to... Um, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> Excuse me. For me, it uh, it was uh, kind of a cycle of uh, hiring technical professionals or the idea that we were in pursuit of technical professionals and then finding that the uh, education experience and and, you know, as as we kind of call them, the, the knowledge uh, and skills, the KSAs, you know, knowledge, skills and abilities 
if they didn't have a lot of those from the experience side, then the education side was was uh, always a challenge to try and uh, validate and uh, make uh, a consistent uh, application process for the applicant. So often we ended up choosing the one with the best experience mm. uh, and may have looked over an awful lot of candidates that uh, with better education outcomes would have been uh, equally as good a candidate. Interesting, huh? Because you, you need them ready to go, right? Yeah, absolutely. We, we're always looking for the plug and play. And, and um, you know, on the industry side, what we found was is that if we had to lean more towards uh, an individual with a lack of experience, but an individual, that same individual who had the education, we spent a lot of time on a very steep learning curve bringing them up to speed. Mm-hmm. And that's where you really started to observe uh, or at least from my experience, observe the learning how to learn, how to learn is is an in- incredible journey unto itself. Everybody learns differently. Everybody finds a pattern of success, but in, uh, in a world that is often uh, in education kind of plagued by the regurgitation of information and the acquisition of information through a memorization process, there, there wasn't a lot of critical thinking uh, that was being assimilated with it. Hmm. So uh, part of what we ended up doing in industry was to think that we had to over, over qualify an individual. We might put an individual in a role where their education qualification far outweighed their uh, job description, but we thought we needed that in order to, accomplished the task of uh, bringing that balance between education and experience and often not to a successful outcome because when we overshoot on the education side we create a mismatch of expectations if i try to put an engineer in a drafter's role as an example um, the engineer is going to get frustrated that they're not doing engineering work Mm. whereas the drafter can often be put with experience can be put into engineering design or engineering focused roles as a stretch from their education where their experience kind of outweighs the deficit of what they don't have in education. Wow, that, that was a mouthful right there. That's really interesting. Uh, I wonder if colleges would want to hear that, <laughs> right? Because they're well, promoting the other side. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a constant challenge and a, and a real balancing point. Hi, my name is Peggy Hohensey. I go by Peg. Um, I am the mathematics department chair for Purdue University Global, where I supervise and work with approximately 100 math faculty, full-time and part-time faculty members. We are a continuous enrollment institution, so approximately every three weeks we start a new course term with different uh, types of classes. We offer both traditional quarterly based courses and we also have uh, modular classes or competency based courses. And our students can often pick which type of format they would like to see each of their classes in, in the not too distant future that should be across the catalog for every degree program where the students will be able to pick which format they'd like to see all of their classes in. And they can even mix and match in the same term start, some traditional, some modular, in order to best 
customize their program to fit their needs. We have um, various degree programs. I am part of the School of General Education. So we support the different degree programs at our institution. Because our average age is mid thirties and predominantly working adults that are looking to earn the credential to move into that next degree, uh, that next career opportunity or to start their new career. We don't have uh, very specific degrees that a lot of universities have like a math degree or a physics degree. All of our degree programs are very career focused and our mission is specifically to work with those non-traditional students to be able to offer them the opportunity to either finish a degree that they had started and never completed or to earn their college degree that they may have put off for 10 or 20 years. Because of our population, we see a lot of students that come in with significant skills gaps. And so that's one of the things that we've been able to successfully leverage the live binders for is to be able to remediate skills for students that might need a refresher in certain topics especially as a just-in-time resource while they are learning math or science or other subjects where they, they need that kind of scaffolded in. So that is so fascinating, uh, especially after hearing John speak and knowing what John is going through. You, you both are in the same world, but in two different worlds. Um, you're coming in with students who have the experience, they're at probably still working, right? They're in Most the job of our market. Students are working, yes. The, 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 the overwhelming majority of our students are working adults who are looking to further their education so that they can get a better job. Right, it's, it's so interesting. Um, and and you'll, you've been doing this for a while, right? Kaplan University was where you had started and they kind of were we're doing right. this a while ago. Right, I've been with the university for 10 years. Um, we were Kaplan University until two years ago when the Purdue University system actually purchased Kaplan University. They were looking for an opportunity to significantly expand their online offerings for non-traditional students. And because they were, I don't want to say behind the curve, but they, they kind of waited a while before they, they got into that market. And they realized that it would take years to be able to put in place the systems and processes and stand up the faculty and all of the other pieces that go with that. And so they decided instead to purchase Kaplan. And so Kaplan University no longer exists. We were completely redone. Uh, we are now part of the Indiana public system. And we still have this, a, a very similar mission. We still work with those non-traditional students, but we now are part of the Purdue system. And as a public institution, it allows us a lot more opportunity to work with adults within the state of Indiana and throughout the United States. 
Now you said something that kind of made me think about John with the lifelong learner and not so much memorization. John, you were talking about that. And then you had something mm -hmm. about remedial, uh, was it remedial assistance, Peg, that you were saying where the live binders came in to give the students access to resources that then could help them catch up uh, to the math that was required or to right the and it's not true remedial because we don't offer any remedial courses but we may have a student for example that's in our college algebra class and they may not have done factoring for 20 years and let's face it if you don't use it you lose it and factoring is not something you do every day in the real world so being able to have the live binders with those resources that the students can go look at a video to kind of refresh their memory because they may have done that in high school 20 years ago and they just need somebody to show it to them again or to step them through the process to kind of get all of those brain cells firing in the same direction again try to help them to remember what those processes were. But it's not something that we may have time to cover every single option in the class itself. So being able to use the live binder as a resource to give them those just-in-time resources has been great for us. And one of the things that we've done very successfully with our live binders not the one that you have showing here because this is for a science class where they put all of their units into a single binder but in math instead we do a binder per unit so if the students are in unit one the only resources in that binder are related to the content in unit one or prior skills that we have access to in case they need a refresher Binder for unit two is only unit two or prior skills. And, and that's how all of the binders in the course are set up. So they won't find materials from unit six in a unit two binder. They don't need them yet. So being able to organize it that way, the students see it as a resource where I'm not gonna be digging through 14 pages of links. Instead, it's only the stuff that's relevant to what I'm learning this week. So, um that just in time that's that's the term that you use that i think that's really unique and uh, john it's interesting to get your feedback on it because from my understanding peg if i remember correctly um what you found because you were tracking your binders um mm -hmm. is that the students who had moved on to say unit four or five or six you found that unit one was being even more so viewed because it would give them the chance to say, oh yeah, I remember covering that in unit one, I can go back to that binder, like you said, do the just in time. So rather than seeing you know, more views for unit six, you would see them go back to unit one. Maybe you can explain that better than I can, but I, I thought that was kind of interesting. And I know John was kind of suggesting that with his binders as well, is that you know, we're yeah. never, uh, your students are never, should never expect to memorize but that have, know that they can go back and find what they need when they need it. The kind of just right. in time kind of. No, I like, I really like that terminology. Of course it resonates with my, uh, with my manufacturing background uh, from an engineering standpoint that uh, um, so much of what we do is just in time. And of course, one of the biggest uh, innovations in education that's taken place over a long period of time has been, has been YouTube uh, in regard to information dissemination. But it, 
it often is mischaracterized as being an educating tool. And I think that's, that's a tremendous difference is you can find anything on YouTube, but to find things that are effective in the subject matter area really has to come from the, the qualification and curation of those materials into something that is um, by design used to educate. So it's, it's really understanding the, the just-in-time nature that the student may not be done with the unit in a serial fashion the way we think. Often uh, what I find students doing is looping so that they'll go forward in a particular unit or a particular area of study and then they'll loop back to what was existent uh, before as a reference because they don't necessarily remember the intimacy of uh, command structure or what you know what that code looked like or what that CAD model uh, function required them to do and for me uh, I take that one step further in that um, I find that the community of students that are out in industry now are also a great source of uh, help to me to refresh and refine my teaching in the classroom to better prepare those students. Uh, often what I'll do is use my live binder as a tool to uh, invite uh, former students who are now uh, workplace professionals into the process of you know looking at the information and that really accomplishes two things. It often um, refreshes the the learning of the individual it's like oh I forgot we did that and and that technical professional who was my former student um, uses that information as as their own tool and their own memory device um, but they also are able to look forward and help to say well you know this this particular uh, application in this particular lesson you know we don't really do it that way in industry and it doesn't mean that I change everything according to what an individual is is suggesting but I take it as good input what I find is the bigger benefit though is exactly what uh, uh, I think we've just been talking about and that just-in-time nature of it uh, by opening up my my curriculum, if you will, and the lessons and being able to host that outside of my learning management system is also getting a lot of attraction from the community just in a in a very uh, passive way from my involvement. In other words, uh, the student who's now a technical professional takes that curriculum with them. Often in a learning management system, once the lesson's done, we close off the lesson, we close the module, we close that learning opportunity. And if the student didn't avail themselves of saving it as a PDF and trying to curate it on, them, on their own, uh, they lose the value of that particular project or that particular application. Now I have a way to share that at any point in time going forward. Uh, and they may not need it right out of school, but they might need it a year later. And their the recollection of what they had in the past is pretty strong. So rather than having it rely on me, I am really pleased that LiveBinders allows me to use it in the classroom and then make it available to my students outside the classroom, which allows me to concentrate learning management on what it needs to be, which is the, the assessment and the compliance and the, uh, and, the cre and the creation of content that's specific to meeting a course outcome. But the curriculum in terms of the project value or the other work that is of value later down the road is still available to the student. 
Yeah. So, so Peg with that, um, when you use the, the binders and you broke them up per unit, was that something that, um, you thought of and was it counterintuitive to your other instructors to do it that way? Because, you know, I often see binders that, um, and John, I think you do this too, where you, you break it up, but, uh, you know, they'll try to put everything in one binder and, and, um, you may see a binder that has all six units in it and it, it can be overwhelming to a student. You know, I hadn't really thought about that before, but I'm just curious to know what your process with that is. Actually, it, it wasn't counterintuitive at all because when you look at how adult learners learn and how adult learners use resources, it fit right in with that. And that was one thing that we were very cognizant of because we design classes and then roll them out for all of our instructors in order to maintain consistency because we are a relatively large university. We, we're just north of 30,000 students. And so when we're going to be teaching, you know, six or eight sections of our introductory math class starting every three weeks. We want to make sure that all of the students see the same content, are exposed to the exact same material, and face the same objectives. We're very objectives-based mm -hmm. with our learning and want to ensure that all of our students have the same outcomes. So because of that, we wanted to make sure that all the resources were available, but we needed something that we could update and it would not have to wait for the next time we revised our course. Because since we do create courses that are then migrated for every term start, we revise them every one to two years. But in the interim, it's going to have run 20 to 30 times on eight or more sections. That's a lot of times that the students see that material. So we need to make sure that everything is set up in a way that maximizes the student's experience and exposure to the content. One of the things that has really worked for us with the live binders by doing it in the unit format is it allows the students, you know, to, to really concentrate on the content. And then when they go to the resources, it's exactly what we believe they need but say we find out through the first couple times teaching a course that we miss something or we've created a new resource that, that's an improvement over something we had or in addition to what we had in our binders one of the things that has helped this to be a really successful project for us is the fact that the url for the binder doesn't change but as soon as we update the binder it, the update is live in all of the classes that are using that binder. That has been huge for us because we are constantly revising, updating, adding to, changing up the materials in the binders. And if we had to wait two years for the next revision of the course in order to make that update, by then the material would probably be outdated or need another update. This way, if we change the, the content tomorrow, it's live tomorrow, even though the course started three weeks ago or six weeks ago, or may not start for another two weeks. So that has been something that has really helped us a lot 
because not only do we have to make sure all of our materials stay content relevant and accurate, but they also have to stay 100% ADA compliant. So they all have closed captions and they all meet all of those additional requirements as well. So there's a lot of checks that have to go into a lot of boxes with these particular resources. So that's kind of a, a nice segue into what I was hoping that we, you know, get into some juicy conversation with when, you know, which is about getting your, you know, your course material together. Um, Peg, you had, you had said that the course starts, when you say course starts, do you mean um, that the students are actually enrolled and they're ready to go? Or are you referring to, you know, a learning management system term of, you know, when you submit the course to, uh, into the system, I guess, is what I'm, I'm thinking. Kind of both. Um, what happens in our system is we have our course shells and the courses migrate on a certain day and then approximately 10 days later, the students are enrolled, the class starts. And then that entire process happens every three weeks. So we, cause we run an A track, a B track and a C track and they're all on the quarter system. So we are always enrolling new students and they, they, we have a separate set of faculty. Our faculty teach on only one track so that they can concentrate for the entire 10 weeks on the group of students in their class. And then they'll have a week off and then they'll have another 10 weeks with the group of students in their class. But we have three different tracks running so that students never have to wait more than about three weeks to start a class because we don't want them to have to wait, you know, for the next fall term or the next spring term or, you know, it, it's too long a wait for an adult who's trying to get that credential to further their career. Right. Okay. So it, it, it's an ongoing thing. But the course shell doesn't limit our instructors because our instructors are instructors. They're not facilitators. They actually are instructors. They teach the course. It has live portions that are done in a meeting platform. They, you know, facilitate the discussion board. They grade the assessments. There's all of these different pieces that go on and they are instructors in the class and they are encouraged, strongly encouraged to add to their course shells but the shell, they cannot change. They cannot delete anything, they can't add anything. And the live binders are in the shell so that they're available to all the instructors. We have instructors that create materials that go in the live binders, but we don't allow them to put them in there because they have to be ADA compliant because your school will get sued if you have materials in there that aren't ADA compliant. So they, when an instructor creates a material that they want to have in the live binder to be able to help their students and everyone else's students, it is then reviewed for ADA compliance by myself or my assistant chair before we post it in the live binder. Because the minute we put it in the live binder, it is live in every section that is out there. So that's interesting. So, so you're, by the way, your learning management system is Blackboard, right? Brightspace. We're in D2L Brightspace. Okay. I'm not familiar with Brightspace. I thought, f uh, were you in Kaplan with Blackboard? I, I can't remember. No, we were on eCollege before oh, okay. we went to Brightspace. But okay. the rest of the Purdue system has been on Blackboard until just recently. They very, very recently switched over to D2L Brightspace. Okay. 
So obviously they've got their whole system down and you, you've been able to, I guess, would you say you've had better control over the material because of this live binder link that, that um, obviously your instructors can't, you know, can't change. They can't change the course in there without getting through you. Right. And that was required by our curriculum team because of the ADA compliance issue. We just, it's not something that we want to risk. It's also not something that we want to do. We don't want to ever post a material out there that some students will be unable to use because of issues with a challenge of some sort. Uh, I personally am hearing disabled. And so I'm and a former special ed teacher. So I'm very aware of making sure that all of our materials are available to all students equally. You don't want to give a student an advantage or a disadvantage when it's something as high stakes as a college course. Right, right. So John, is that, um, I know you're, you're kind of, I don't think it's a norm for you, but I think you had a similar experience with your learning management system where you didn't have control over your course material in such well, a way. There, yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Um, you know, Butte College uh, negotiated a, a long time ago uh, that faculty owns its curriculum. Um, so the, the, the sheer reality of that is that uh, we, we create our own curriculum. Uh, we are given the academic freedom to um, utilize that curriculum in in the in the way that we deem as faculty the most effective however um, just like uh, my colleague just indicated that we do have to go through compliance so we have to go through a curriculum committee uh, process to clear that curriculum and make it available and that said part of that is the consistency of ADA compliance if we're doing anything online we have to assure that uh, we have met the equity issue of, of uh, complying with uh, ADA and that uh, whatever we're providing, with some exceptions, my course, my course area being an exception because I, I cannot teach effectively to sight impaired uh, students with uh, engineering graphics or drafting technology. It would just be very difficult. But uh, we do have to have everything closed captioned and we have to have everything um, with alternative uh, sources and tags so that it's compliant. We also have a Title uh, V compliance in the state of California, which is a reach across the entirety of um, our community college system that we have to comply with and with respect to community college uh, level of curriculum clearance. But the sheer reality of using a learning management system is that uh, I think sometimes we want we, and I'm, I'm speaking really more for myself and my fellow faculty, and um, there's even a uh, perhaps a new avenue of discussion to have since um, the circumstance of the pandemic and COVID-19, um, that we all do it differently. We all approach it differently. So in, in a sense, we, we don't take into account the student experience, which I think uh, Purdue is doing a much better job from what I'm hearing and what I'm uh, certainly uh, a part of today's discussion, uh, that there is a consistency, that regardless of instruction, the student experience is more consistent. Uh, and the fact that we've been thrust into a full-time 
what we call temporary remote instruction for the balance of uh, our spring term and perhaps into our, our summer term as well. Uh, everyone has been thrust into an adaptation of their face-to-face -face into a world of remote uh, instruction. The student experience is wide, varied, and very stressful. And so um, that, that limitation or, or circumstance, I think we need to turn that around and, and start looking at, at it being more of a, what's the consistent message and visualization and experience. We have to really take into account the student experience. And I think that's again, where I look at, not to get too far into the, to, uh, the theory of, of it, that's where I see the practical nature of live binders being such an avenue of success for my programs, because I can not only share that information with students and former students, but I'm also sharing it with my colleagues, my part-time teaching colleagues in the same area. We're actually collaborating together to formulate that same approach um, that Purdue is, where we're canonizing the things that need to be continuously updated into a place where everyone who's teaching a section of that same course is teaching it the same from the same material. Um, that's been a huge uh, success factor for us in, in our small program, and one that I think could be replicated in all of our programs. So um, is this because we're, you guys are both, or maybe Purdue, you've done this for a while, have moved away from, quote unquote, the textbook format? Because well, that, that was the, the, the common ground, right, was the textbook. Well, and we use a textbook and mm -hmm. use third-party software for like practice problems where the students can practice online. But we intentionally write all of our classes textbook agnostic because so we could switch the textbook out tomorrow and the students would have exactly the same experience because our content is not written to the textbook. Instead, we find a textbook that covers the content that our faculty deemed to be appropriate to the course. So when we develop a new course, the first thing that happens is the faculty members with the expertise in that area come to a consensus on what's the objectives and outcomes that the students need to walk away from this course with. And then once we have those in place, we develop a list of sub outcomes. And from that, we then go looking for a textbook that covers that content. If we can find one, great usually we can if we can't find one then we may work with a publisher to either put together two different textbooks as a custom book or in one case we actually had our faculty member who was a subject matter expert wrote some of the content that the textbook publisher put into the ebook for us and so from the student's perspective it was seamless it just looked like another chapter in the book because they have online books. Mm. But from the publisher perspective, there was content that belonged to the publisher and then the content that belonged to our faculty member who had actually authored it. But in both cases, in all cases, we start off with our outcomes because we do not allow the publishers to drive what we teach. We teach what we believe is the best content for the students that are in that particular discipline. Yeah, I would say honestly, uh, we're in we're in a similar circumstance. in, in my program area, we are uh, not only textbook agnostic, but we are also uh, 
uh, CAD or 3D modeling agnostic. So in other words, we don't necessarily teach to a, an application uh, trade name of AutoCAD or SolidWorks or Inventor. We teach to a set of objectives that are um, are looking at the outcomes through the looking glass of what does the student need to know in functionality, um, in in creation, so that we can create with uh, without respect to a specific software, we can create project work that can fit in any software. And we often find we have to do this for a variety of reasons. Two principal reasons are um, the marketplace does shift from time to time for who is uh, the market leader or who we are finding our advisory committee is telling us uh, that they're using from an application standpoint. And we want to um, to, to kind of revisit, you know, for me, my personal philosophy of, of teaching in a career and technical format is to realize I have two products. Uh, the first product is I have to have relevant programming that the student is interested in taking because there are learning outcomes that can relate to jobs that they want. The second is uh, my product is, or I should say the second product line I have is the educated and learned student who has sufficient skills built to meet an entry level opportunity and an opportunity that industry is looking to fill. So if I look outside those boundaries and look at what the textbook is, is telling me is the best approach, or I'm looking at the software vendor and the vendor's telling me, you've got to have students learn this, I may be missing great opportunities to uh, be relevant to my advisory committee and relevant to my students because it may not be what they want. Again, LiveBinders really helps me curate that content because now we actually have content being developed where the project is identical in the actual outcome of what it is that the student is creating as a, a 3D model, but they're doing it with three different applications. So as things ebb and flow or as former students, now technical professionals, are confronted with a software sea change in their company, they're not looking to be educated anymore. They're looking to be trained on how to use the software. Often that loops back to what was their original experience in their comfort place? Well, it was comfortable with the flashlight project that we did in this particular uh, class at this time with this software. Oh wait, if I can relate what I did then and with that application to what I'm learning now, I can do it and I don't necessarily need as much training as I thought. So we're really looking at live binders being that place where uh, uh, I really appreciate the term agnostic uh, is that we're, we're looking at it as we are the ones who are the, the trusted source and the stewards of the information. We're not, we're industry experts. Yes. Uh, but we don't govern. What we do is we try and just, we try and manage and we try and, and, provide the best possible. So in your departments, the Live Binders has kind of worked because you're really concerned about the students, you know, um, experience coming out of it ready to go, like they're getting what they need. And you're also, I mean, what I'm hearing is the professors are really engaged at that level too. Like they really have a say about the coursework that um, is going out to the students. Like there's a lot more engagement than I imagined. Yeah. So if, if yes. you are kind of picking 
the course material from whatever you know the instructor is finding as relevant right they're a major part of that curation is how is it happening in other departments like what if you didn't have live binders how are you doing that how are you bringing in you know the pearson video in one sequence and maybe it's the mcgraw hill or maybe it's like you have their you know khan academy because it just happens to, you know that the instructor finds it right how is that happening otherwise and and are they not on the same agenda as, as both of you are articulating in your departments? Because that's really interesting to me. Um, I mean, obviously nobody, not a lot of people know about live binders and, and that's our goal is to kind of bring these disparate resources, but how is that hap How is that not, is it happening or not happening? I guess is, is what I'm asking. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because my Dean went to graduation recently and at the graduation they have all the deans and assistant deans that attend this big meeting and during the meeting one of the deans made a comment about a way to organize resources so that students would use them and my dean said we have that and then another dean made another comment i, I don't remember what it was about but it was it was something related to you know just in time and my dean said we have that <laughs> and she actually started talking about the live binders because both the science department and the math department which are both in the school of gen ed under my dean use the live binders very effectively mm -hmm. and so she started talking about it and two weeks ago i had to do two separate one hour long meetings to show the deans and assistant deans in the other schools at our university how we're using live binders in math and science because they are interested in potentially adopting them for use in the departments across the other schools. So yeah, <laughs> it's spreading, it's starting to spread. It's taken a while, it's taken longer than it should have, but it's starting to spread at our institution. I brought live binders in when I arrived 10 years ago and science started using them about three, four years ago because the assistant chair in science used to be a faculty member in the math department. So hmm. she actually was very familiar with them. When she went over as assistant chair, she convinced her chair to start using them and now they're using them very effectively. And it's just, it took longer than I thought it would for it to start to spread, but it's finally starting. So did you find live binders when you were, um, uh, before you went to higher ed? I actually found it when I was working for a technical community college in South Louisiana, Fletcher Technical Community College in. So still Home higher ed, right? Still yeah, it's still ed. higher ed. It's about an hour. Uh, it's a technical community college about an hour south of New Orleans. And oh. I just happened across it. My background is actually in computer programming prior to going into education. And so I have always been a person to fiddle on the internet and look for tech, not just for the sake of including tech in the classroom, because I'm not a person that's going to include it because it's pretty, but if it's useful and the students can make, you know, effective use of it, then I'm going to, I'm all over it. And so I found live binders and we were using them then for the community college. And when I came over to what was then Kaplan University 10 years ago, I brought it with me and we've been using it consistently in my departments 
and now it's starting to spread across the rest of the institution. Well, it, and that may be because they're, is it because the institutions are realizing that their value is from the teacher as, a, I say teacher, instructor, um, as a curator of knowledge and that their role with the student is really important? Like I'm trying to find what's the, what's the big picture change here? Is it because textbooks and the publishers, quote unquote, are seen as not as valuable or maybe because they're not as responsive as they need to be to the information that needs to come in? Um, or is it also part of this remote now, this remote learning is so, is gonna be critical, right? That, you know, even with UDL going on where, you know, you've seen it from the special um, education space where everybody's a different learner, right? And the textbook doesn't make any sense from that perspective, right? If you just only teach to the textbook. So I'm right. just showing- and Right. You know, it often has to do with showing different ways of approaching something, because if you can get the student over the hump of understanding how to approach it, yeah. often learn, learn. in math, they can do the calculations. They don't know that's where to start. That's right. That's a learn. That's that's what I refer to as learn how to learn how to learn. So that yes. that, that 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 learning methodology, that that method of solving the problem is really what we're after in that critical thinking modality that, um, you know, training programs are great. And I, and if I were confronted with uh, uh, a life-threatening uh, circumstance, I want the best trained paramedic to work on me. But in that same context, the best educated engineer isn't necessarily the most effective problem solver because they may not have the skills necessary to be, uh, a, an effective critical thinker. So we have kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. And I think the shift has occurred um, more in the way that accessibility to information has made apparent to the student, I can find it here. I can find it anywhere. I can Google it. We've made Google a verb where <laughs> we literally have imprinted the notion of information and intelligence gathering through the, the verb Google. And so I think in this bigger context, the, the realization now is that yes, textbooks are, are, they had a stranglehold on the industry for a very long time, kind of conscripting us to, well, you know, I'm gonna teach to uh, the outcomes of the course, but the outcomes of the course are really defined by the textbook. In other words, we had the textbook first, we had the outcome second. We're not subordinating ourselves to that anymore as teachers and as uh, instruction. We're now looking at the outcomes being the uh, most promoted at the, the far left side of the outline, if you will. And then the way we are presenting the content is adaptive to what uh, the student mode of learning is, is usual and customary now, that mm -hmm. Google is just a way of life. What we're hoping is that the influence is, is that we have an equal chance with that student to help them understand why their Googling may not be as effective as imprinting on this is how we this is how we need to approach this application to deepen that critical thinking set of skills. Exactly, because in the real world, your boss is not going to tell you, OK, I need you to, you know, calculate this statistical probability and it's based on a normal distribution and and you know all of these different little things that uh, a problem exactly. that they may approach yeah. it spells it out for them instead yep. your boss is going to say i need you to develop some statistics based on this data set for me 
And you have to know what you're looking at and how you are going to provide the information, not only the information that your boss wants, but in a way that makes sense to whoever looks at it. Because if the person that's looking at it can't make sense of what you provided, then it's useless. And that's the part that the students struggle with that I don't think the textbooks always do a good job of helping them get over that hump. And it's one of the things we try very hard to ensure is that we provide resources in a lot of the ones that our instructors develop themselves that guides the students. Okay, when you're in a situation like this, these are the questions you should ask yourself in order to know how you're gonna approach this situation. That's the instructor saying that, correct? Yes, yes. yes. So it uh, seems- uh, Tina, I'll build on that with a real uh, quick, real quick example. Um, in in the publishing world of education materials, often uh, we're gifted with this uh, set of quizzes, worksheets, and often those worksheets are are very nicely done. They're they're you know extraordinarily well published. They're pretty, and in that prettiness, the use of how many lines does it take to answer the question maybe mischaracterized example uh, ask a question where the answer is really one maybe two words at the most the actual worksheet will provide you three lines that's for the publisher's benefit and so part of the learning how to learn how to learn from the student standpoint is to avoid the pitfall of regurgitating the information and then exhaustively looking for an answer that doesn't exist because it's one word not three lines if that makes sense you're, so I think what you're saying is the student is their brain is being taught the wrong way to solve the problem. Yes, like, we've we've encultured this idea that if if you didn't come up with an answer that's three lines long, you didn't find the right answer. Right. And it's devastating to students who are transitioning into the real world where the problem is. I need you to do some statistics on this and present it in a way that is compelling and understandable. That that's a mind blower for some students when they reach the real world. I bet you it, 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 uh, I bet you it stops them in their tracks. Like I bet you it hinders them so much. Uh, yes. Because they're, they're not, they don't think that they can just talk out loud. Do you know what I mean? Like, correct. Figure yep. it out. Yes. I don't know how to articulate that, but. Well, and that was one of the things, as I mentioned earlier, we have traditional and we also have competency-based modular courses. And in the modular courses, which I, is one of the things that I teach periodically, because although I'm not required to teach, I enjoy it so much, I, I'm a teacher. So I teach periodically and I teach statistics. And I have had students that when they have to do their module a couple times, they get so frustrated and it's like, no, you don't understand. That is exactly how this is designed. That you're, you're working on developing your competency. And once you've demonstrated that you've achieved it, then you'll pass. But you can't expect to pass every module on the first try or you didn't have anything you needed to learn. Mm. Oh, and I think that's I wish I had teachers say that. <laughs> 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 That's extraordinarily well said because I think one of the, the pitfalls of instant information is the mis misunderstanding that instant information does not provide instant competency. And the student, um, when they're confronted with, I, I got all the information. I had this example just the other day in, in my uh, advanced engineering graphics class. 
and and it was a, it's a very well known project that the the actual nature of the model that we created was been out on the internet for a long time and the student I expected that this assignment would take uh, 90 minutes and I gave the students 90 minutes to complete it was a timed assignment this student was done in 10 minutes I, I went back and I I looked at the assignment I looked at it okay he actually provided all of the information that I was expecting and then I looked at the source where it came from and so mm -hmm. I communicated back with him and I said you got this done in 10 minutes I I'm not here to believe that you really got it done in 10 minutes he goes no I really thought you just wanted to find out how fast I could find it on the internet. Mm. <laughs> wow. Said, well, that's really, that's really great. But do you know how to make this project? Well, no. I said, that's your work. Get to work. So in oh, other wow. words, that was a complete misunderstanding. And I went back and looked at the assignment and what it said, and I didn't mischaracterize what I was after. He just really took it on his own to say that, well, I think this is what he wants interesting right yep well it's a comfort to me to hear that uh from an institution down to instructor level that you're all thinking about your students um not so much you know are they going to get that degree to go do what they need to do but are they really being confident uh workers students people uh, that's what that's what i'm interpreting there and you know, I, I, it's just fascinating to me that this is really is taken this long and I'm not talking about it from a live binders perspective, but from, you know, there's maybe it's because there's so much information out there that, that you can shift from one source as being the all source. And, and now the instructor role to me is sounds like it's really important to the institutions because they're the deliverers of, um, I guess the interpretation of the knowledge that that actually much bigger than deliverers. They are the ones that decide and should be the ones that decide what the students need to learn because the faculty who are discipline experts and many of the faculty members in my department and I'm sure also in my colleagues have real world experience either in the past or in many cases ongoing because a, a large number of my faculty teach at night because they have nine to five land-based jobs that yep. they do during the day and they use that as experience that they can then share in their classrooms at night so they are the ones that really are in the best position to determine what is relevant and what our students need to leave the institution with in order to be successful in that next step, which for them is their career. So this leads me to the next question that I, I wrote down there. But um, so the institution realizes that the instructor is valuable, uh, a critical piece to this knowledge sharing, right? Um, yes. I have two, two reactions. One, is it one individual instructor that sways or do you, do you guys make sure you rein the, the instructors in, in terms of the department is on the same page? I, the answer I think is yes, but you can answer that. And then the other one is, so then if the instructor is so valuable and putting this curated material together, who owns the content? Like can the, if the instructor has, has a nine to five job and the job takes them to a different state and they leave, can they take their valuable material with them? Like, how does that navigate between, you know, are you guys on the same page? Is it per institution? 
and that's where I'm going with that. Well, I suspect we're going to be very different on that because in our case, the university owns the content. Mm -hmm. We have a subject matter expert who works very, very closely with the course lead. Our course lead is the person that's responsible for the course over time. They're a full-time instructor in my department, in most departments. Now, some use part-time faculty, but depending on discipline, but I use all full-time faculty as course leads. And the subject matter expert and the course lead work very, very carefully to develop the course under the oversight of myself as chair, my assistant chair, and our curriculum manager. So we work as a team. Now, where we feel and, and un operate under the assumption that the university owns the content is our subject matter expert is paid to develop a course. So they're not doing it for free. They may not even teach that course the first time or the second time that it launches. Most of them will teach it very soon, but it's not a guarantee. But they are, it, they are provided a separate contract and they are paid quite well to develop a course. So that way, it's, it's not that we're asking them to devote all of this time and energy to coming up with something and then we're taking it away from them. And it's a voluntary thing. They can choose to be a subject matter expert and be paid to develop a course. Or if they don't want that role, it's never forced upon them. And we typically have pe more people volunteer than we have subject the need for subject matter experts because a lot of folks like developing curriculum. And so they, they are happy to take the contract to develop that for us. So they get paid a little bit more than if they were just the instructor. They're actually paid a full course contract to develop a course, even though it's a much shorter period of time. So, so how does that work for your department and the binders that you put together? Are you the course creator? I've never developed one of our courses because I'm the chair and it's not a role I'm allowed to do. It has to be a full-time faculty or a part-time faculty who is our subject matter expert. And then they work with that course lead who is full-time faculty and then as chair and assistant chair, we oversee, like I, I review all of the content and ask a lot of questions and make sure that they're taking into consideration all of the different options. And sometimes I'll ask them to rewrite things if I feel like it's awkward or if it's not explained well, or we often have disciplined discussions, especially when it's the statistics classes because I'm a statistician by training. And so, we may, you know, go up against each other and have discussions as to whether or not that's something we should cover or shouldn't cover or whether we're covering it correctly or not. But in the end, we come to an agreement and we often will include other faculty members who teach that particular discipline. They are invited at every step along the revision to offer suggestions and comments and, and you know, have you considered and those kinds of things. So we, we use our entire faculty for that process, but the subject matter expert is the person who gets paid to develop the course. So they do the majority of the work. Okay. So where does LiveBinders fit with that course structure? In all of our courses, it's in the left-hand nav divided by unit. So you take, so the course sets the agenda, the rubrics, all of that, and then the content that supports the course 
goes through you and you create the binders is that my assistant chair creates them and we and then we get all of the materials that are developed by faculty that are provided by the textbook that we feel are, are good matches we do sometimes use things from the internet with permission as long as it's something that we th deem appropriate and and relevant and we also have uh we're very fortunate that we have an academic success center which provides tutoring and other services to our students in math composition business science and technology we have five different sub centers and the math center writes videos uh video content and, and creates videos for us that we can also put in our live binders i see that was one of the things that I liked about both of your binders, which I didn't go over. Although Linda and I have actually reviewed your binders uh, separately that we'll splice into here. But um, both of you provided links to help centers uh, for your students that, uh, you know, so while they're in your course binders or unit binders, you know, right there is, is help. And it, you make it very clear so that no one in our interpretation feels left out. But to, to go back to the question, I'll, I'll, John, I don't know if you want to um, piggyback off of. Uh, yeah, so, um, question. you know, with respect to ownership, uh, I think the, the, the most descriptive answer I can offer from the community college uh, perspective is that it's going to vary by institution. Uh, and and uh, in, in the institution I work at, uh, we have negotiated that the instructor owns the content. Uh, again, through the, the characterization of academic freedom, I'm gonna teach this the way that I want to. It doesn't mean that there isn't alignment and a check and balance system in place, but it does give a latitude to the instructor to put their personal flair on it. Now, to, to within what type of oversight? Um, I would say probably, you know, the argument could be made probably under under uh, representing an oversight perspective and probably over representing some of the regulatory concerns that our curriculum committee always has to assure the consistency in the course outline of record. So the touchstone for all of our activities is always done from the perspective of the course outline of record. Sometimes those are course and application agnostic. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're very specific to an application or very specific to, uh, to a textbook because of some other regulatory need that uh, outside of the confines of, of our delivery system requires it. For example, in some of our law enforcement academies, our uh, 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 others health and safety academies have to be done conscripted to a post um, methodology of uh, curriculum delivery. So the instruction is very regimented, very regulated, and I would say probably mimics much of the Purdue model where the instructor is the content deliverer. They're the subject matter expert, but they are not allowed in any way to touch the curriculum to change uh, anything that affects the outcome of a well-trained uh, individual in in the health and safety field. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think the the second uh, or or maybe the first question that you asked uh, is how how does the word get out? How does this actually you know how do we create this influence? And I think that too is an individuated uh, process, uh, instructor to instructor, where 
we're, we're pretty good at sharing good ideas, but we're not really good at um, spending a lot of, of time to collaborate on those good ideas. And, and what I'm getting at, uh, Tina, you and I have discussed in this area of flex uh, in the state of California, where we're, we as instructors are actually paid a certain uh, a percentage of our time in our contract to do professional development. And in that, it equates to somewhere in the neighborhood of about uh, 65 to 70 hours we're paid. And then we have to show proof of that through a recording process that we do to um, say that we did this, we attended this uh, seminar, webinar, we went to this conference, uh, we did a department collaboration on um, this particular application area. And again, it's, it's an individual experience. It's also somewhat of a collective subject matter experience as well, so that there is a process of collaboration, but the, but the tools that we often use, we share the good ideas and we share the bad ideas more, if that makes sense. We're, we're more vocal about, uh, in, in a collaborative sense, to say, well, now nah, that didn't work, rather than, focusing on, well, this does work. And so uh, in order to um, facilitate that, uh, the Live Binders uh, flex activity that I did, we've actually now turned into a virtual activity, put some uh, quiz questions, if you will, up there to say that we now have a completion uh, process for a learning outcome that says, well, this is, this is how it works and this is how it works for me and is now available in the library of virtual flex activities. So it's an organic process in our school, and I dare say probably an organic process uh, throughout the system. Is there any advice you want to give to fellow instructors, uh, especially going on with this remote? What are, what are some tips? Communicate with your students where they live. One of the things that I have found is very effective as an instructor is I don't email my students anywhere near as much as I used to. I text message my students because they live with their phones in their hands. And even though their phones get their email, they are much more likely to respond to a text message in a timely manner than they are to an email. Plus, if you text message them, for some reason that comes off to the student as more personal and they really respond very well to that. Hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I think that's, uh, it's almost like they're having, you're having a face-to-face -face as opposed to an email. Yes. It takes a lot more time. I am happy to admit that. It takes quite a bit of time to send out individual text messages to the students, but I have found it makes a huge difference, especially those students who are struggling or who seem to have gone quiet mm. that you can often get those students to make the extra effort and come back around if it, you're text messaging with them interesting hmm. i couldn't agree more i couldn't agree more i uh to uh really kind of piggyback on that um i often say meet the student meet the learner where they are. So uh, we don't remediate because that's a, a mandate that we don't remediate, but we do remediate. So mm -hmm. that means that 
often we end up with uh, smaller cohorts of students who are um, are kind of categorized as being behind, uh, they're being on task, on schedule, and then you have some that are, are you know, potentially overachieving or outperforming the, the course uh, expectations. Uh, meeting the student, meeting the learner where the student is, where the students are, is extremely important to understand. So I, I couldn't agree more that uh, that includes the technology. And uh, uh, my, my takeaway in this remote learning uh, context right now of being thrust into it is, I'm finding myself asking more questions than assuming. And uh, it's really challenging me as a teacher to ask uh, the students what their experience is like. So rather than just taking it on task to say, I think I'm pretty sure, I, I kind of know what they want. I ask the question, what's the most important? And that I include the use of technology. Would you like to see this up on YouTube or would you like to see it as a link to YouTube through uh, you know, through uh, Canvas, that's our learning management system. Uh, and often what they'll say is, I wanna see it on YouTube. I'm on YouTube. I want this to be a part of my YouTube. It's, it's a very interesting contrast. And again, forces us into that discomfort of, I think I, I'm, you know, I'm assuming I know what I know, but I, but I don't. So ask a lot of questions. Hmm. Linda, I, I, uh, I don't know if, um there's anything that I missed or there's some comments that you want to add in? I'm just coming from the K-12 uh, section. I'm fascinated and long ago learning when computers was just a figment of our imagination of what to come. All that has been shared here today. And um, it's something that if I was still working, I would be bringing live binders, I think, into my library curriculum. Um, and seeing how uh, John and Peg have done it is been very informative to, for me if I were to work with any K-12 teachers that were interested in providing course material for their students. Um, and so many of our questions were answered in this discussion and I'm just, I was jotting notes around <laughs> all over my pieces of paper here. I'm just fascinated and particularly about asking questions because they're always saying at K-12 that we have to have those kids ask that big question. And that's one of the hardest things for students and even teachers is to answer a question so they can have that critical thinking skill to answer and finalize what they wanna share. So I've been fascinated by a whole discussion and thank you for all that you just shared. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I can't wait to uh, get this video uh, looking good or the podcast looking good. And I'm sorry we didn't go through each of your binders. I mean, if you guys want to take a little time, I um, we've we've done it before. Uh, Peg, I know we we picked the science binder instead of the math binder. Is there anything that you want us to cover just to kind of get it clipped in, if you want? I mean, um, no, it's just the science. They they do a little bit different in that they just do the one binder for all of oh, the right. course and then they do a unit tab and then they put their content in sub tabs under that unit tab okay because they have a lot less content per unit that they're sharing whereas in math we're sharing a lot of content in every single one of our units so 
I think that's a good point. Um, and, and one that I was stressing earlier that I, I often see binders where everything's in the one binder. And, you know, if it's, it's, if it's a heavy binder, it can be overwhelming to the students. Um, exactly. And, well, and, and also when you look at the students taking the science 121, that's anatomy and physiology one. That could be a very different student, potentially, than a student taking a survey of math course. Because the anatomy and phys is probably a nursing student, or nurse practitioner student. Yeah. And it's not to say that they didn't start at MM 150, but we would hope that by the time they moved from survey of math to anatomy and phys, that they probably have grown and matured as a student. And so it, it's meeting the student at a very different place. And I think mm -hmm. that's part of the reason why it can be set up so differently and it's still very effective. That said, in math, we still do it by unit all the way up to our graduate level statistics because I feel personally very confident that by doing it that way, it's organized to maximize the student's usage of it. And when you look at the first year that we switched over from Kaplan to Purdue Global, we actually looked at how often our binders were used. And in that one year, our binders for our seven classes were used 450,000 times is how many hits we had. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. wow. That is yeah, I would think too is that it's also an invite for those that are public for students from anywhere to come in to have maybe a better understanding of the question they have in relation to the, you know, the course. Right. And it's possible that we did have some students who did not belong to our university that were using them. But when we looked at the percentage of usage according to the percentage of students in the, in the enrollment in our classes, mm -hmm. it lined up pretty well that we were confident that the majority of the people who were using them were our students. You're meeting the students where they are. We Absolutely. are meeting the students where they are and yes. they are what we are also finding is because that number is so much higher than the enrollment in our classes that we're seeing students that are not only using all 10 binders for all 10 weeks of the course, but in a lot of cases, the students are going back to the live binder two, three, four times in the unit week. So it, they, they know what's there and they know where they can go back and find more information or see that resource over again and they're finding that those are valuable for them well yeah if you're studying for a test or you know you just didn't get a concept it's right there for them and exactly I guess that's what you're looking for is is the resource useful enough that they feel that they can go back and use it over and over again to really understand the material exactly and that was the whole purpose for doing this project was to be able to put those resources right in front of the students because if they have to go looking for them some students will but some students won't and we wanted to capture everybody and not just the ones that were going to make the effort to go look for them but also those students who either didn't have the confidence or the time because with our students being working parents who often come to class after they've gotten their kids home from school fed them dinner gotten them to bed and our classes are at the most popular class times are eight o'clock eastern and ten o'clock eastern 
So our students are there at night and they might not have the extra time to go digging and looking for, mm. but if it's right under their noses, they'll take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, if there's something you've sort of forgotten from a previous course, they know where to find it. Exactly. So for, I know you had a, a little bit of a struggle with the transition. Um, for anyone who's wants to try to use live binders for their department, you, you, I felt like you had some tips and tricks, or maybe you just insisted. I, I can't remember the stories that you told me, but is there anything, you know, if, if you have department resistance to? You know? Well, and we had one instructor who was a course lead, and when her course was revised, she deleted the live binder links out before the course migrated. And so for the entire time that that course shell was being used, the live binder links were not in the left hand nav. And we, the, the, it showed the power of having them in the left hand nav because for all of the other classes, the uses, usage far exceeds the enrollment in the class. So the students are going back over and over and over and using all of the binders in all of the units. And for that particular class, approximately half of the enrollment was what we saw as far as usage of the binder. Even though the instructors made the students aware of the binders, not having it in the left-hand nav where it was easy to find made a huge difference. And since we have revised the course and it is now back in the left-hand nav, all of a sudden those binders are getting used. So there, there is resistance sometimes and it, you know, luckily we don't see it a lot. And that particular instructor is not with our institution anymore. Oh, uh, <laughs> like, yeah, that wasn't a very nice thing to do. <laughs> and it negatively impacted the students, which I have a big problem with. It's, I remember being contacted by someone from Purdue about trying to recreate your library through the learning management system. I don't remember what happened with that, but. Yeah, that would have probably been our production team. Okay. But um, I, I just remember that, you, you know, with the transition, you were not going to give up those binders or. Nope. <laughs> and I, you know, I don't know how that happens for most institutions where, you know, they purchase this huge learning management system and everything is going to go through there, you know, yeah, I've been very fortunate. My dean, who was the was a, a math chair before she became dean of the School of General Education, and she has been 100% on board because we've been able to show her the value of these and how it has had a positive impact on the metrics in our classes. And the students specifically mentioned the live binders in their end of term surveys when they write comments. I can't even count how many times the students have specifically mentioned the live binders and how helpful they were. And so she sees the value in it and she has championed it for us many, many times. And so thank you, Jody DeCourt, because she has been fabulous. That's great. Yeah. So really, it's just, uh, you just got to give it a try. I mean, yes. whatever it is that you believe in and the technology that you think works for your students, you just have to be really resilient about it and, and see that it really works. I mean, this, it, the proof is in the pudding, right? If the students are using it, that's the, I guess that's the key. 
Well, and being a statistician didn't hurt because I was able to throw all kinds of graphs and statistics oh, at them. So, uh, it's like, uh, no, you can't take these away. Look what's going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so you had that going for you. you. The colors were flying for you. You, ha you had it in you to, <laughs> to make the data work. I don't go down easily. That's for sure. <laughs> well, if, well if, that's the, if that's the case, uh, I'll tell you what, I, I may be reaching out, uh, reaching back to you for some of those statistics because, um, you know, even on a, on a very modest use of uh, live binders, uh, you know, we can track it, but I think having data that supports the, the larger view would, would be very much uh, influential to our institution. So uh, I look forward to maybe looking at those with you at some point. No problem. I actually presented about it at a conference and I started the presentation with, I don't own stock in live binders. I don't get paid by live binders, yeah. but I'm yeah. going to show you what's going to help you with your students. Yeah. And I they were very impressed. That's actually a uh, boy. We we think alike because I often start with that because uh, you know in in my uh, in my flex activity that I did I, I started with that. I don't own stock in live binders. I, I'm not an owner. I don't get anything for this. I just want you to see what it is that I really am impressed by and how it works for me. And boy, right. I you know I don't want them to think that I'm biased in any way because right. I'm not. I just have seen it work very successfully and I. I always like sharing information that can help my students or anybody else's students. Uh, you get into education, let's face it, not for the money, but because you have a passion for working with students and helping them be successful. And that passion extends beyond our institutional boundaries. Boy, you bet. Yeah, and that's what, that's what I love and that's what I see and I, I feel it when I talk to you guys and I'm so happy to get you in the same quote unquote room together and uh, hopefully sharing ideas and, and feeling good about, you know, what you guys have done to, to make your mission kind of work successfully for you and your students. So well, I've, thank I've, you for having us. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much, Tina. This so a great opportunity. I appreciate it so much. You guys stay safe and healthy. Y'all uh, too. Wash hands. Lots, lots. Yes. Please wash hands. <laughs> Yeah. Thank right. you for sharing. I have thoroughly enjoyed this time. Well, Anytime, thanks. it was fun. Mm -hmm.